I wanted to talk a little bit this evening about the Buddha. I've been reading stories. I've been trying to encourage myself to read um, <laughs> the Pali Canon, which is uh, my my main training for many many years was in Zen practice, and so I read and studied a lot of the Mahayana texts. Didn't study some of the fundamentals. And uh, as I began trying to read the Pali Canon, I understood why. Um, it's, uh, it's a whole sort of like reading Shakespeare. It's got a whole style of its own. And so I'm finding my way in uh, with this wonderful book called The Life of the Buddha, which is just um, taking out stories about the life of the Buddha from the Pali Canon. So it's sort of a beginner's way in. Um, but in the process, I've become really inspired by the stories that I'm reading. And two things in particular um, have really struck me about what I've read about the Buddha so far. And one is his tremendous skillfulness. So um, there is, particularly for me as a, not exactly new, but somewhat nascent a Dharma teacher, I am really impressed by how skillful the Buddha is at um, meeting a very wide variety of different kinds of people and being able to find a way to present the Dharma in a, in a fashion that the person in front of him can take it in. So I'm feeling impressed by that. However, um, I've also found some stories where the Buddha, um, I was going to tentatively call this talk, Mistakes the Buddha Made. <laughs> but the, and the point is that there are places where the Buddha wasn't so skillful. And I found that I was even more inspired by that. Um, because it gave me a sense of um, the humanness of the person, you know, the prince Siddhartha, Shakya, the, the, the prince who ultimately awoke and became the Buddha. And so that's what I'd like to emphasize um, uh, this evening is actually both sides, both the skillfulness of the Buddha as a teacher, as a speaker, as a transmitter of the Dharma, the truth, but also the, the human qualities. That, that the Buddha brings. Some of you um, may know this story of early on after the Buddha had awoken and he was sort of walking around with this glow. For those of you who've done longer retreats, you may know this experience um, of either seeing someone who's come off retreat who sort of walks around with a glow or having that glow yourself. So I have a very vivid sense of his radiance as he was walking about. And someone who he ran into said, you know, what's with you? Uh, you know, what's with the glow, buddy? <laughs> he said, are you, a, are you a god? He said, no. Are you a, a, some kind of celestial being? No. Well, are you a, a wizard? <laughs> I think, or a clown? No, a wizard or a magician? And the Buddha says, no, no, no. And finally, the person says, well, you know, what are you? And he says, I'm awake. 
So there's something for me very fundamental in, and wonderful in Buddhist teaching in that it's not about trying to get out of our humanness. It's actually much more about finding a way and allowing ourselves to be fully human. Um, and the path of the Dharma points, again, not so much to transcendence, but to this rich potential for human transformation, for each of us to have this possibility to wake up. So when I speak about um, this, this slightly tongue-in-cheek way, this, uh, this aspect of mistakes the Buddha made, um, please um, understand that I don't mean it in any way disrespectfully. Um, What I really mean is to point to um, a way in which when we overemphasize the kind of celestial or magic or otherworldly qualities of the Buddha, and there are many, many stories about the Buddha's great magical powers and his all-seeing wisdom eye and things like that, and those those are wonderful and inspiring in their own way. But there's something that we miss, I think, when we, when we emphasize or overemphasize that aspect, which is that this is a practice for us. <laughs> this is a practice for us, uh, for we human beings who live in this, you know, the human realm in Buddhist cosmology is understood to be kind of in the middle between their higher realms where there's kind of more pleasure, less discomfort, and then there are many lower realms where there's significantly more pain and discomfort and misery. And, and the idea is that we have some of both. And so the, the, the thrust of the practice of the teaching in not emphasizing transcendence or trying to get out of our humanness, but helping us become fully human, um, is it's a different kind of a path. And so for me, looking at some of the ways in which the Buddha himself wasn't always exactly perfect, um, helps to humanize and helps, um, it's helped me understand a bit more I think what the path is really about. <clears throat> um, so let me tell you um, a few of the stories. Some of you probably know in the kind of grand scheme of the, the kind of mythic or heroic story of the Buddha that he began as a prince and was uh, a prince with an overprotective father who sheltered him, cloistered him in the palace or palaces and really didn't want him to have any difficulty. And so in the early part of his life, the Buddha was, uh, he lived on one end of sort of extreme from uh, hedonism to asceticism. He was deeply influenced by his family culture and he just kind of went with that. When he was inspired to leave the palace, cut his hair and give away his royal garments and go and um, become a seeker, he um, flipped and became, you know, essentially a wandering sadhu, um, an ascetic, 
and he took up the very extreme ascetic practices of his time. So in a way, he went from being influenced by his family culture to being influenced by the religious or spiritual culture of his time, and he just he kind of jumped right into that. And while he was a very good prince, he was also sort of a, an A-plus ascetic. And he, um, there's, there's um, lots of descriptions of the extremities to which he went to practice these kinds of ascetic practices. And it's described, you know, that he ate at some point one sesame seed a day. And that his spine, you could see the front of, uh, the back of his spine poking through the front of his body. That's how thin he was. So he was um, inspired, really, to understand suffering and the end of suffering. That was his impetus to leave and begin on the path. But he, he didn't find the right way immediately. Um, and instead sort of stepped into, as I said, what was kind of the normal spiritual practice of the time, and then discovered that it wasn't working very well. That starving himself essentially wasn't um, helping him answer the key question that he wanted to answer, which is, um, how can I understand suffering and its end? It wasn't helpful to him. And so there's a key turning point where, um, first I'll read you a passage where he describes his own suffering as he's practicing this kind of extreme asceticism. And then he wonders if that's really the right way to go. So let me read you this first passage. It's very vivid. So this is the, um, I think of this as the Buddha trying too hard, over going too far with the kind of extreme asceticism. So he says, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed, pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. Then, as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down and constrained and crushed my mind with my mind. Sweat ran from my armpits while I did so. Though tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established, yet my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by my painful effort. But such painful feelings as arose in me gained no power over my mind. So you get the picture. Some of you may have had a period of meditation occasionally where you're having some discomfort and you clench or bear down. So maybe you didn't go to this extreme, but you may have had your own version of uh, pushing, efforting, striving in this kind of way. Um, and he goes on to say, this is, this is the turning point for him. Whenever a monk or a Brahmin has felt whatever a monk or Brahmin has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now, painful, racking, piercing feeling due to striving, it can equal this, his experience, but not exceed it. But by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher than the human state. And then he wonders. It's a great line. Might 
there be another way to enlightenment? (laughs) So it's important to um, not just take on what you're told about how to practice, but to keep your own heartfelt intention in mind and practice in a way that uh, helps you toward that end. And to wonder, is this way of practice, whatever that, the particular way it is that you're engaging, is this really useful for me? Is this really helping me? Or might there be another way? And when he asks himself this question, it throws him into a reverie, which is now, it was an unknown part of the teaching for a long time that was uncovered, which is referred to as his memory of the rose apple tree. And he remembers a time when he was a young boy and his father was out in the fields and he sat down under a tree in the cool shade and smelled the earth and the, you know, watched the festivities and he fell into a kind of trance state. And here's, here's his, here are the words. I thought of a time when my Shakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome things I had entered upon. And I abode in, in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure, born of seclusion. So he remembers this time when he naturally fell into a spacious, clear, aware state of meditation, but that that had come about not by this kind of intense effort and striving and harming of himself, but instead by a deep kind of relaxation and enjoyment and pleasure. And this memory becomes his answer to his own question. Might there be another way to enlightenment. And so there's an important piece here, I think, for all of us to know that this turn that happened for the Buddha is often what's described, when Buddhism is described as the middle path, it's often described as the middle path between hedonism on one extreme and asceticism on another. And so for each of us, there's finding our way on our own middle path finding a way in which we can maintain rather than wear ourselves out, either from, you know, overactivity or from extreme deprivation. And um, when we're able to find a way that's in the middle, that's that's balanced, that's centered, then that's what allows us to move toward whatever it is our intention is for freedom, for awakening, for uh, uh, being a kind person in the world, whatever that aspiration is that you're holding as your own personal version of what this path is about. So I think it's important to see that um, as he began to practice, he didn't get it right immediately. So the Buddha didn't leave his palace and go out and sit down and boom. And I say this a little bit because a lot of people who I meet and work with seem to expect that of themselves. You know, well, I've been sitting for 15 minutes and my mind's not quiet yet. 
or I've been sitting for three years and my mind's not quiet yet, or whatever it is, it's, I think it's part of our Americanism, right? We just, we want instant results. And we think that we should have them, and if not, what's wrong with us? So again, I think it's helpful to have this example of the Buddha, you know, he, he took a variety of wrong turns in a way. Not that when I say mistakes the Buddha made or when I say wrong turns, I mean that, that in the sense that there's really no mistakes and there's really no wrong turns. Everything he did contributed to his finding his way. Just as everything that each of you do contributes to your finding your own way whether it's finding a posture that allows you to sit or it's finding an amount of time or a place or a particular practice that aligns with whatever it is that you're up to. That each, it's for each of us to find our way in a similar fashion that the Buddha did. Now, you might say, (laughs) that's all fine and good because this kind of... um, struggle and trying to find his trying to find this middle way all that happened before the buddha's enlightenment but after he was enlightened then surely everything was smooth sailing for, from there but actually not there are countless stories of the kinds of difficulties that the buddha faced in his own body in his emotional life within the sangha after enlightenment so this mythic idea we have of I don't know what, thunderbolt comes out of the sky and we wake up and then no more problems is actually not true to the text. It's not true to the story of the Buddha himself. So I want to share a couple of um, examples that I think are useful. And the first is just to note that after the Buddha woke up, he didn't want to teach. He, he was very content with his own understanding and he felt that people wouldn't understand. And so his um, sort of innate tendency was just to keep to himself. And um, the story goes, actually I'll read you the language because it's, it's very human. He didn't say, I'm having such a good time <clears throat> on my own that um, I don't want to teach. What he said was, Others, if I tried to teach, others would not understand me. This is the part I like. And it would be wearying and troublesome for me. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? So the the great Buddha, with his huge, you know, compassionate heart, right out the gate, he didn't run out wanting to save all beings. He didn't want to be wearied and troubled, actually. Because... um, he said, it said in the text, his mind favored inaction and not teaching the Dharma. And it's described that he felt that there were not enough people with um, little dust in their eyes. In other words, that people who he would talk to would be too confused. They wouldn't understand. So I'm not going to bother and trouble myself. I'll just you know, enjoy my own enlightenment. Fortunately for all of us, a Brahma guard, God, overheard the thoughts that were going on in the Buddha's mind. And um, he zoomed down to earth and implored the Buddha to please teach. Um, 
he, when he heard the Buddha saying this, he said, he said to himself, the world will be lost, utterly lost, if the perfect one favors inaction and teaching. So, so I said, he comes down to earth and he says to the Buddha, um, perfect one, there are beings with little dust in their eyes. There are people who can understand and can awaken. And he has to encourage them. And so the Buddha considers it. And he kind of uses, again, his, <clears throat> his wisdom eye to look around the whole vast world and see, are there any beings with little dust in their eyes? And he sees that that's the case. But it, what's interesting in the text is that it says that he makes this determination not out of the clear seeing so much, but out of compassion. So it says, out of compassion for beings, again, seeing the suffering of the beings, um, he surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. He surveyed the, eye, the world with an eye of a Buddha and then decided to teach. So he decides to teach. And he wonders, hmm, who should I teach? Who should I teach first? And he comes up with three or four examples of people who he thinks you know, have little dust in their eyes, wise men. These are actually um, a list of teachers who he had studied with before he was enlightened. And with his wisdom eye, he's able to see, nope, this one died. Whoop, the next one, he died too. Whoop, this one. And the first three or four people who he comes up with, turns out they're all dead. So then he has to wonder again, and he pauses and he considers, and he thinks, well, how about the, the five ascetics who I practiced with? Um, my, my five friends who actually, um, they were not so nice to him because they were kind of, what we might say, fundamentalist ascetics. And when the Buddha decided that he would stop eating only one sesame seed a day and took some rice pudding, which was before he sat down to, to awaken, they, um, they thought he was a failure, essentially. They were like, oh, he's eating. <laughs> Horrors. And they, you know, they went off. But after he went through his first, you know, his, his A-list of people who he could teach, and they had all passed away, he decided, I'll try my old friends. And so he sets off to find these five ascetics. And here's one of my most favorite stories in the scriptures a little told story by, about the wanderer Upeka. And um, so while the Buddha is on his way to find his friends, he runs into this wanderer named Upeka. And like the first story that I told, Upeka is really struck by the Buddha's beauty and radiance. Um, and I'll read you the uh, interaction. So Upeka says to the Buddha, your faculties are serene, friend. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Under whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do you confess? So you can imagine, you run into someone, a friend, a colleague, someone you meet, and they're radiant and glowing and they seem so happy. And you say, how did you get like that? You know, I would like some of that. Who did you study with? What teaching? What process? What, what did you do? And here's the Buddha's answer. <clears throat> this is, remember, the mistakes the Buddha made, right? So, 
Who did you study with? Who is your teacher? With whom did you go forth? The Buddha says, I am an all-transcender and all-knower, unsullied by all things, renouncing all, and I owe this to my own wisdom. To whom should I concede it? I have no teacher, and my like exists nowhere in the world with all its gods because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the teacher in the world without peer, accomplished too, and I alone am quite enlightened. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what Upeka said when he, when he heard. He, so the, the, the response is, um, in the text, it's just one line. It says, he says, may it be so, friend, and he kind of scurries off. <laughs> So you can read, you know, the color commentary into that, like, yeah, right. Like, what is with this egomaniac? Who knows, right? You can imagine what he might have been thinking. So he didn't get it right the first time he opened his mouth, right? All of these things are true. He is the one solitary awakened one. He had no peer, no teacher, no... But when he just sort of said it straight out, didn't go over very well. Just like, you know, if somebody asked you or you asked someone and they responded that way, you'd probably think, ugh. So little by little, the Buddha refined his teaching over time. And he, as I said, you know, in my continued readings of the Pali Canon, it's amazing how skillful he is, how he can respond to Um, a parent, a soldier, a banker, a king, a prostitute in an incredibly appropriate way for that person in that moment. But the first time he tried it, he didn't work so well. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging because it means that we can all do the same. We don't it's called practice for a reason, right? (laughs) We get to practice. We don't have to get it perfect immediately. And he didn't give up, right? He kept going. I mean, the Buddha taught for years and years and years, and he honed his skill, but he didn't start perfectly. And, you know, the, the, the beautiful, concise teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is, you know, that there's suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, that there's a possibility for freedom or an end of suffering, and that there's a path. This sort of succinct and beautiful teaching was actually not the first thing he said. It took him a while to get to that. It took him a while to find that beautiful, um, simple way of presenting the teaching. And in some ways, I think, isn't it interesting that he started by sort of pointing to the grand possibility that he was feeling in himself and perhaps might be able to offer to others. But where he came down ultimately was to talk about suffering. He found a way to connect with people in the human realm where we live. And he didn't stop by just talking about suffering. A famous quote from the Buddha is, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So it's not just about suffering, it's about suffering and freedom. But again, he didn't have that all fully worked out and articulated at the beginning. 
<coughs> so I want to point <coughs> excuse me, to a few lessons for us. So the first is that awakening doesn't mean perfection. If what we mean is perfection as in uh, no room for learning and growing. Um, Awakening means, this is the the name of my company and my favorite, one of my favorite Zen stories of a student who comes to his teacher who's on his deathbed and says, what is the teaching of an entire lifetime? And in usual kind of pithy Zen form, the dying teacher says, an appropriate response. And when you read the teachings of the Buddha, as he teaches for you know, decades, his ability to respond appropriately to people is remarkable. But he learned how to do it. And he didn't get, you know, he didn't try to speak and it didn't work and he said, see, I was right. Dust in their eyes, forget about it. I'm giving up. He didn't do that. So there's something about understanding our practices as being a practice for how can we be a perfectly human, not how can we be perfect. And that our job as human beings, and it includes a big part of what the Buddha himself did and learned, is that we have this capacity to learn and grow. We, like the Buddha, have this capacity to awaken. Um, but we have to we create the path by walking it. It's by, by taking it on ourselves and trying it out and learning and testing. But that's how the path is made, and that's how each of us grow bit by bit. That's how each of us awaken bit by bit. And this state of awakening is not a static state. It's a dynamic unfolding. And the things that we think of as mistakes or difficulties are exactly, you know, the grit that polishes the pearl. When I lived in the the monastery, we used to have this um, playful way of talking about monastic practice, which is that it's like rocks in a tumbler. And everybody comes into the monastery with their kind of rough, crusty edges. And by living very close and rubbing up against one another, all these weird, quirky personalities, even if you're not talking much, (laughs) little by little, the rocks get polished and they become or turn into something beautiful. So we live on the learning planet. We don't live in the planet where we're supposed to get it all right or have it all figured out. And this capacity to, uh, to be smoothed out through our interactions with other people and with ourselves, with our own emotions and thoughts and bodies, um, this is how we awaken. This is how we get polished. There's a, um, there's a famous story about Ajahn Chah that some of you may have heard that I like a lot about speaks to this, where um, one of his students came to him and said, you know, you're not very consistent 
You know, I noticed that this person you told one thing and the other person you told something completely different. And the student was really kind of upset and challenging him in a way on his sense of integrity. And Ajahn Chah said, it's like this. If I see someone walking down the road and they're veering left, I tell them to go right. If I see them veering right, I tell them to go left. It's this learning how to adjust, adapt, respond that is the path of awakening. If, for those of you who do yoga and do any kind of balancing poses, you'll know that uh, being in a handstand or being in a tree pose, standing on one foot, it's not a static balance, is it? There's a constant adjusting that's happening in order to find our center. This is what walking the path is like. It's a dynamic process, not a static process. So we can see this, and I think be encouraged by this, in the Buddha's own process. So a few more things. Um, So what helps as we're walking this path, as we're getting ground in in the rock tumbler, as we're meeting whatever the particular circumstances are of our own lives. Um, I think one of the things that's really um, central that you can see from the Buddha's life is intention. The Buddha was very clear what he was up to, that he was concerned about suffering and he was interested in the end of suffering. And if eating one sesame seed a day would have given him insight and a solution and an answer to that central heartfelt concern, he probably would have kept doing it, but it didn't. And so he was able to continually correct based on knowing where he was headed. One of my favorite poems from the Zen poet Ryokan, it's a short poem that goes like this. Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. We could just stop there, right? Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't seek for anything but this. Here's the instruction, he says. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? So we have to know which way our cart is pointed. This is our sense of intention. And... um, that's for each of us to find. You know, it was actually very personal. It came out of his own personal experience for the Buddha, his intention to resolve this koan or this kind of existential question for himself. And, and important to recognize that this setting of intention for the Buddha was, it was, came from compassion. Just as when he was implored, please come teach, it was through compassion that he decided to continue. So there's a quality of a heart that comes in here in our intention. What is it that we deeply care about? What is it that we want to move toward? And once we have a sense of intention, we then need to cultivate attention. This is what we do in meditation practice primarily, right? So that again, the Zen teacher Hakuin had a student come to him and say, please, I'm struggling with my practice. Help me. Give me some instruction. And 
um, what, can you, what can you say to help me? And Hakuin said, attention. The student said, okay, thank you, but I'm really struggling, and could you give me a little more help? And Hakuin said, attention, attention. He said, I heard you the first time, and thank you. I understand that's really ne- important and necessary, but please. And Hakuin said, this is a great Zen master, right? Attention, attention, attention. So we're cultivating this capacity to be present with whatever it is that's arising, to train our attention so that we can be here, that um, we can notice what's happening moment by moment. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is um, that the piece that is most poignant to me in my own kind of digesting and metabolizing of all of this, reading about the Buddha and being inspired and encouraged by his story, is to recognize that it's really up to each of us. That, as I said, we we make the path by walking the path. That's how it gets created. And that it's precisely how each of us takes on this practice and metabolizes it and digests it and makes mistakes and corrects and finds our own middle way, finds our own balance again and again and again in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. That that's what the practice is about. And that's what keeps the practice alive. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of ideas on a page or a bunch of stories about this guy called the Buddha who once upon a time had this experience. But this aspect of the humanness of the Buddha's life, um, for me, has been very helpful in recognizing, oh, he's kind of like me, like a human being. And so it's up to me, just like it was up to him, it's up to each of us to take this on and digest it on our own and make it our own. So I'm going to close with um, a poem which uh, find it which speaks to um, it's called the Buddha's last instruction. And the poem I think is a is a brilliant um, description of the Buddha's last instruction. The last thing the Buddha said to his monks was essentially what I'm saying to you, which is make of yourself a light. He basically, he didn't say, do everything I told you. (laughs) Follow the rules. What he said was, you take it on. And after all of these years, after, you know, First, his first effort out the gate of trying to speak and explain his experience that just kind of fell so flat. At the very end of his life, when, like the Zen master who said an appropriate response, this is what the Buddha said. He said, make of yourself a light. And that was sort of his penultimate um, statement to his monks and I think to all of us. So let me read the poem and you'll hear there are two voices. There's the Buddha voice and then there's the Mary Oliver voice, the poet's voice, and how she's taking in 
his words in through her own experience and her own life. The Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in this difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head he looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. So thank you very much for your kind attention.